me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode, I'm joined by best-selling author Mark Englington. To Metallica fans, he might be best known as the author of So Let It Be Written, the definitive biography of James Heffield. On this episode, we get into so many cool stories, talking about some of the major behind-the-scenes players in the early years of Metallica that even the most diehard fans perhaps do not know. To when Mark met James and Cliff in a bar in the Master Puppet Store. To his opinions of the most recent Metallica recordings, including Lulu and so much more. I am so happy to announce to celebrate Mark being on the show that we are teaming up for the first ever Metallicast giveaway. So Let Be Ridden has been released under different titles, different parts of the world, including the title of Metal and Man. Mark has four copies of a Metal and Man that he is so graciously willing to not just give away, but to also dedicate to four potential winners. All the rules and how you can qualify to be a winner will be released on my Twitter account at MetallicaSpod on Monday, September 7, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. The window to qualify will close at 10 p.m. on Tuesday, September 8, 2020. All the rest of the details will be posted on Twitter and Twitter only. So be sure to follow me and Mark on there at MetallicaSpod and at Mark Eglinton for all the details. Now here's my conversation with author Mark Ellington for episode 35 of Metallicast. My guest today is a best-selling author who has written and co-written many books, uh, some of the more relevant ones perhaps for the listeners of this podcast, Official Truth, 101 Proof, The Inside Story of Pantera from Rex Brown, For the Sake of Heaviness, The History of Metal Blade Records from Brian Slagel, and perhaps, well, not perhaps, definitely the most relevant, So Let It Be Written, the definitive biography of James Hetfields. Please welcome to Metallicast author Mark Eglinton. Mark, welcome. Thanks very much for that intro. That was great. Uh, some of these books were a long time ago. Some of them a bit more recent. Uh, right. Some of them I think about. Some of them I think about a lot. Some of them I never think about these days. But yeah, all part of life for me, and uh, it was a pleasure to be involved in all of them. So uh, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to to discussing some of this with you. Absolutely, it was. Uh, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and then when we finally settled on this and we've been having a back and forth a bit on Twitter and a lot of interesting uh, tidbits and conversations have already happened prior to recording. So I'm really looking forward to jumping in and, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of all this. But before we do, uh, before we do uh, something, I always ask first time guests is, you know, I want to know your background with metallic the, the first time, you heard the band, the the moment you became a fan. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't remember the, I don't think I remember a single moment. What I do remember was, just to give you a bit of where I've come from, I'm in Scotland, obviously. I was, at the age I am now, I was a teenager when Metallica broke. So I was 13 when Kill 'Em All came out. 
and I was at a boarding school uh, where we didn't have many privileges, but one privilege we did have was to have magazines mailed to us, and we could also go to the local record store. So in combination, we got Kerrang! magazine. I got it right. sent to me. I remember reading a review of Metallica in there and thinking, got to hear this. Where can we get hold of it? Yeah. And it turned out that, I mean, just for context, up until that point, we were listening to Black Sabbath, we were listening to Rush, we were listening to pretty much everything. You know everything and anything that was available, but right. Metallica was this name that popped out of the magazine, and at the time it created quite a buzz. So I remember going down to the local record store in the town that our school was in, uh, this place called the Ace Music Centre, and I was very pleased to see a vinyl copy of Kill 'Em All sitting there, uh, which I took back to the school. And from that moment, we were we were all probably there was ten of us in this group of uh, guys who were into this kind of stuff. We were all into it right away. Yeah. And from there, it was just a sort of unquenchable thirst for the next thing. When Ride the Lightning came out, the same. There was probably a few more people on board by then. Then when Master of Puppets came out, I do remember that as being a more sort of symbolic moment because right. that was a moment that the guys who weren't really into metal got into metal. When they heard, yeah. I think it was Intro to Battery, some of the guys in the sort of common room that we had heard that and thought, wait a minute, this is something different from what we heard before. And from that moment on, I think, uh, well, I was hooked already, but a lot of other guys were hooked too. But I was in from the beginning, but I think Master of Puppets was the moment that everything changed for me. And uh, I also saw them on that tour at the same time with Anthrax. Oh, awesome. I was lucky enough to meet James and Cliff after it, which at the time didn't really mean anything because I was just a 16-year-old. They were right. not much not a great deal older yeah i don't think any of us at that time had any concept how big they would become they were sure. just another great tour that came through town obviously that anthrax tour was fantastic and you know anyone yeah. who talks about that tour now says that was one of the greatest ever bills but at the time it was just another good tour and we met cliff and james in the bar next to it and they were cool and didn't really care about talking to us but we did <laughs> and uh looking back now it was very lucky to do that because that was not that long before cliff passed because oh, wow yeah maybe i can't remember how long but it was maybe a matter of weeks until the the accident so uh wow. looking back at it now it was a huge moment but at the time we were just kids wow uh that i i had no clue i i you know i've i read and enjoyed so let it be written but uh you know you really stick to um kind of the facts and you know for the people who were there um yeah. and sort of experienced it without injecting too much of uh yourself in it so i had no clue that you you know started really from the first album really followed yeah. them all the way through that's great yeah, i mean part of the reason why that book exists just to give a bit of context is that i was actually approached by a publisher to do it because i was a fan yeah. and i hadn't written a book at that point and I agreed to write a book without really knowing how I was going to do it. Of course, you just say, I'll do it. Then I'll figure out how I'm going to do it after that. Right. Uh, it was to a strict formula. There was a formula. They, they wanted it to be something that guys who are uh, men and women who are huge fans would, would enjoy. But they were really keen that it was also a book for people who didn't know anything about Metallica at all, who maybe you know, were just discovering the band could get into as well. And quite a hard balancing act that when you're writing yeah. You don't want to state the obvious for the people who know everything. And at the same time, you don't want to alienate people who don't know anything by making assumptions about their knowledge. So I felt it was a tightrope I was always walking. 
and it was also a tightrope I was walking in, term, in terms of what you said there, my, my own fan perspective. Right. You know, I don't want it to be about me. Uh, I had to stand back and sort of present it sort of objectively. And uh, yeah, most people I've spoken to have said that that came through in that book. But uh, it was a lot of fun to write for sure, but very difficult when you're so attached to something. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Um, yeah. I, I guess I have kind of two questions that um, I'll throw them both out there because they're tied in with this um yeah uh, you know how first of all how did you break into writing and uh like, how did you know that was an interest of yours and um what kind of you've been drawn primarily to biographies if uh, if i'm not mistaken so what kind of led you down that road and then related specifically to so let it be written yeah. um you know, obviously it's a focus on james hatfield you cannot just focus on him and ignore the beast that is Metallica, but it's a, yeah. it's a book focused on him. So I'm wondering how you broke into writing and also uh, why did you come up with the focus on him rather than a full band or another member? Yeah, good question. Well, the writing thing was uh, something that was historical because that's not what I did for a long time. I, I did other things. I was in business, uh, a variety of different business, sort of business situations. And uh, I reached a sort of, a sort of fork in the road in my life, I guess, for a number of reasons. And it was at that moment that I decided I wanted to think about what I really wanted to do for the rest of my life. Because uh, I didn't want to do things that made me unhappy. I didn't want to be in situations sure. to enjoy. And I remembered my old English teacher at school saying to me, you know, you could write for a living. And at that time, when you're 15 or 16, you don't want to hear that. It doesn't sound, <laughs> right, yeah. it doesn't sound like an attractive career. Yeah. Uh, and you just dismiss it and you think, well, yeah, maybe but how could I ever make a career or any kind of a life out of that? And that's a valid yeah. question for a lot of people doing it. Sure. So I kind of ignored that for, I don't know, maybe 20 years. And then I got to the point where uh, I reached uh, that, that fork in the road I was telling you about. And at that time, this is a bit of an interesting uh, sort of connection because I was in contact with a writer called Joel McIver, who's Joel's become one of my best friends. Yeah. And at that time, uh, Joel had written another Metallica biography, uh, which is out there and has done really well. It's the, I can't remember the exact title. I think it's yeah, the real I, I think, uh, I believe it's Justice for All, The Truth About yeah. Metallica. Yeah. Truth About Metallica. Anyway, uh, that was out at the time. I loved it. And I badgered Joel, basically. I sent him emails. <laughs> and said, you know, how do I get into this and all that? And he, yeah. as he's quite entitled to do, just kind of swatted me away and said, Oh, you know, this isn't something you just do in five minutes. You need to have some sort of background or you need to do right. a review or something like this. And yeah. Honestly, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. Uh, <laughs> right. So I think at that time I thought, well, heavy metal is something I know about. It's, it, it is the sort of path of least resistance for me. I could probably write about it if someone gave me the chance. Yeah. And at that time I was in London and I was kind of digging around any website that was publishing any reviews of anything. And I was just basically begging people to let them write, uh, let me write reviews for them for free. Yeah. And I did, and they were terrible. Uh, <laughs> but it got me a little bit of profile, uh, and I got to do some slightly bigger features. I got to interview a couple of bands on a website called The Quietus in the UK, who I owe a shout-out to because they were very good to me at the beginning. Anyway, that all took me to the point where Joel McIver called me up and said, hey, listen, this publisher uh, are looking for someone to do uh, a biography of James Hetfield. I don't have the time to do it. Would you be interested? And that was that oh, moment wow. I talked about earlier where, 
wasn't my decision. I didn't sit there and yeah. think I want to James Hetfield. They wanted it. So oh, he wow. said, Can you do it. And I, of course, I was going to say, I'll find a way to do it. And that's what <laughs> I did. And I, I actually welcomed the idea because yeah. James is fascinating uh, simply because there's not much info out there about them, as you know. Yeah, right. uh, what there is, it's all very controlled. Sure. Um, but as you made a really good point, it's impossible, just impossible to separate him from the band. Yeah. You know, and some people have said to me, oh, well, yeah, but the book is chronologically, you know, runs in the order that Metallica does. How else can you do it? There isn't another <laughs> way of doing it. Right. It, would be, it would be ludicrous to separate yeah. them, try and look at the two in isolation because they're so inter intertwined. Right. So that to answer both your questions, how, how I got into it and how the, 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 the Metallica James Hetfield thing came up, it was someone else's idea. Oh, very interesting. Well, what I like about your book too is, uh, you know, the focus is really where I feel like it should be on the music, yeah. um, which I appreciate as you know a fan of metallica you it's obviously it you get a well-rounded picture of james hatfield yeah. uh, but really as that you know like all the things about his personality and uh you know family life it's it's not uh it does not go deep into detail about that stuff which i liked it just kind of gives you the info you need to know and how it relates to his songwriting yeah. And who he was as a person, because I think that is the most important part. Like, what makes this man tick? What makes him, you know, the mighty Hatfield, so to speak, you know? And yeah. and, and, no. and and you definitely give a look at the man behind that. But it, I, I just like how it was done because, you know, you kind of avoid going deep into the, the personal, except when it's relevant for the overall picture. Yeah, I looked at it. I mean, first of all, I couldn't, I couldn't have got that information if I'd wanted it. But I kind of look at that thing a bit like, you know, the Loch Ness Monster or something. It's a great myth and, you know, yeah. everybody likes the story. But if somebody was to haul this big sort of lizard out of the water and dump it on the side of the loch, it would kind of be a disappointment. And in the same way, <laughs> you know, if I, if I unmind all this information about James and put it out there in the open, I, I kind of feel disappointed because part of the yeah. attraction of him for me was there is this mythology around, totally. him, around his, totally. his personality. And we do get glimpses of, it, glimpses of it through the songwriting. I think we do, albeit that those those glimpses are, uh, what's the best word, perhaps difficult to pick up unless you're looking too hard. I, think, I, I don't think he's gone all out throughout his career, yeah. put his life into songs. There are some songs, and most of us know what they are, where... I think he's shown us something, but there's never anything too much, and I like that. Yeah, I, and I'd want that to be preserved. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want him revealed. Totally, I 100 percent agree. I, I I was just saying on a a recent episode, I forget which one off the top of my head, but I was talking to the guest, and I said, you know, one of the draws of Hetfield is he is this mythical being. Mm. He, to, for me, like I'm I'm a big fan of Johnny Cash. Uh -huh. um, I'm a big fan of Nick Cave and yep. I'm a big fan of Tom Waits. And like it, these are four musicians fairly different from each other. But what is the one thing they kind of all have in common? They're all kind of like mythical beings. Yeah, um, I agree. And they all just sort of exist and you get little insights here or there. And when you do, it's fascinating. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure I want to know everything there is to know about nick cave yeah you no, know, I, 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 I like the mystery 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think those are really great comparisons for all the reasons you mentioned. You just don't want too much. You want that myth to exist because that's part of what attracts you. And with James, that's been the case all, all along. And if anything, that myth has kind of developed over the years yeah. uh, in different ways, according to how his life has gone. I guess in the case that that would happen with everyone, but it definitely has in his case. And, you know, yeah. I never want to learn much more than I know. Well, it's interesting, too, because you go into this a bit with your book, but, you know, since rehab, um, he's become a little bit more personable and open with mm -hmm. uh, the public, um, especially when it comes to talking about his songwriting. I, I, it, you know, when you look, when you watch or read old interviews with him, it's almost as if he's defensive a lot of times or sarcastic and he never really wants to let you in. And then in recent years, I would say over the last 10, 15 years, uh -huh. he has sort of let his guard down a bit and let you into, well, I wrote this song about this or this song about that. But at the same time, he's become a little bit more private. Like he's, he's not doing the fan club meet and greets because he just, you know, he, he's for family reasons, personal reasons, whatever it may be. It's not of our business, but yep. it, it's it, it's an interesting dynamic where it, it's similar to your book in a way. Now that I'm thinking of it because he kind of lets you in more with the music. Yeah. He keeps the rest of himself at bay. And I think that is more than fair. And uh, and again, even though you he's saying, well, you know, the Unforgiven is a I, I wrote it about this there's still so much mystery. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I think what he does, well, it's not for me to say what he does, but what it feels like is that he, if he's going to give something, he also has to withdraw something else. I think yeah. there's always a push and pull with James. Sure. Um, uh, as you say, entirely fair. I mean, he's earned the right to do exactly yeah. what he wants. I will say that I think the songwriting in general has suffered as a result of that. And this is where we'll get into uh, my opinions about some of the later music uh, I think the, the sort of more personable James Hetfield has resulted in lesser music in, in recent Interesting. years. Interesting. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to jumping into that with you. Uh, yeah. I, one thing I do want to, a couple things I do want to touch on before we go down that road yeah. is just a quick side note. You mentioned Kerrang! Magazine, and I immediately thought, oh, yeah, I miss music magazines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The original internet. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, sadly, I think it's one of these things that's probably gone forever. But in the in those days, Kerrang! was the absolute, I mean, as far as the UK was concerned. And yeah. I think, I know that Lars, Lars was a big Kerrang! fan. Uh, all these guys that were big fans of the new wave of British heavy metal, uh, Brian Slagle, who I've worked with. Yeah. I know that Brian was a huge Kerrang fan because all these Kerrang writers, uh, these were the guys who were right at the forefront of this of this scene, particularly the thrash scene. I mean, it was Jeff Barton uh, who called the new wave of British heavy metal the new wave of British heavy metal when he did. These guys were all writing articles every week. Yeah. Uh, Stefan Shirazi, who does tons of work for sure. Metallica fan yeah. club, Stefan was in that scene back then in London. So, I mean, these people are, have made the, the, the complete journey with, with, with all of this. And yeah. these magazines were vitally important at the time 
because simply it was the only way you could learn about what was coming out. You waited for the next issue to come out and you scanned the pages looking for the review of whatever band it was that you were waiting to hear from. Right. And uh, there just wasn't any other way. You c- it couldn't be like street teamed or teased online. It just right, yeah. arrived. And uh, there was so much appeal with that. Obviously, with the internet now, there is other appeals. You can sure. get reviews of albums. You can you can have bands sitting there talking about why they why they did this and why they did that, and you can get get some build up to it. But there was nothing for me back in that day uh, like the magazines, and I don't see that we'll ever go back. Yeah, but at the same time, too, like I I, I feel like I was sort of the last generation to enjoy the magazines because. The internet was really breaking, became like, was a permanent fixture by the time I was in college. But I was in middle school. I was, you know, buying Hit Parader and tearing out all the band pictures and putting them on my bedroom wall and getting Metal Edge magazine for the latest interviews and album reviews. And, you know, Kerrang! for me was, it's funny because it it was an import, obviously, since it's UK based. But it, I, I was like, I need to buy a copy of Kerrang! because you... It, being a fan of Metallica, you hear about it. Like, you know, Kerrang was the first to cover this. It broke this. And then Kerrang had this to say about this album. And you're like, all right, I need to, I need to check this out, you know? Yeah, and Metal Hammer did the same thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. For, they followed on behind Kerrang and did a great job. Slightly different angle they took. And obviously some of the, some of the writers that were with Kerrang, I think, I think I'm right in saying ended up at Metal Hammer. But it was all part of the same thing. And, yeah. you know. just indispensable and you know i'm very happy you got to see part of that magazine culture because a bit like the the sort of tape trading culture which i was lucky enough to see a bit of when i was younger and 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 fanzines as well which was another thing i got involved in back in 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 the days when i was in my early teens i was writing to guys in san francisco and getting tape sent to me and you know sending letters to people to ask about stuff that was going on there was something so organic about it but really there was yeah. But, uh, you know, the internet, you just, you know, put your screen on and sure. punch something into Google and you have it. Yeah. You know, there are pros and cons to both, but uh, I think our lives are enriched a little bit if we've seen the magazine culture. Yeah, it was, I, I you know, the internet is great for, I think, obvious reasons, right? Because literally the world is at your fingertips. But yep. there's something about, it, it's, it, it's, there's definitely a nostalgia uh associated to it with i think somebody like you and i um but you know there's something about going to the store seeing the new issue seeing like your favorite band on the cover buying it reading the interview cutting out the poster putting it on your wall like it was a whole experience It, it, it it's sort of similar to how you know i think music fans feel about like vinyl or even cds at this point with everything being you know streaming and digital I was about to say vinyl exactly the same. Uh, there was a whole experience with vinyl. Yeah. Far and be- far beyond just playing the record. You know, it was opening the sleeve, looking at the sleeve notes, looking at the inners, all that kind of stuff. Just having this thing in your hand was so important. And, you know, I, I am not a streaming fan. I'm not a, I'm definitely, I'm a download fan. I have, have to download, but yeah. I'm not fan and cds yeah you're right there's still a, a big appeal to something tangible like that in your hand but yeah vinyl and, and magazines were all part of the same scene for me yeah for sure um definitely was like an overall experience and i i find too now that you know there's more content available to me online but mm-hmm. i mean part of it is 
that I'm an adult and I have less time, but I find myself spending less time with the content because there is almost so much. So if a new album comes out and I search out album reviews, I'll just sort of graze through rather than pick up the new issue and read word by word. And, you know, like there were certain magazines that I really valued their opinion, you know, and there's, I'm not saying that does not exist in any form. Now there's still sites I go to and, but it, it it's just different. Yeah, no, definitely. And it makes me think of something else, which is something connected with another book I was involved with, was the book with Brian Slagle at Metal Blade, because Metal Blade was one of these mythical names when we were teenagers. They, right. they, we knew, they were right at the forefront. And we were at the stage where we, we'd scour Kerrang! magazine, and pretty much any, any, any album that was on Metal Blade, regardless of the review, uh, uh, almost without exception, we'd buy, simply based yeah. on the fact if Metal Blade are putting this out, they've got to be great. Right. They've got to be great. And then a lot of cases they were. I'm sure Brian would admit that probably put out a few that weren't so great as well. Yeah. But it shows you when you when you value the opinion of, of either a label or a magazine, you get steered in that direction. And I don't I just don't think you could, that can happen anymore. I think there's as yeah. you say, there's way too much content, way too many opinions. Uh who who's who who do you value now? I, I could think of one site that I would go to to look at a review and think they must be right. I couldn't think of one. Yeah. And in plus everybody can give their review now, right? You have the chats, the comments, the, so every fan now has a printed voice. So, and I, and I think that dictates um, a lot of, I think that dictates at least some of how people view new records because you're not just experiencing it on your own anymore you're more easily influenced by what everybody is saying. Really important point. And this, this applies to a couple of Metallica albums. Absolutely. I think that, uh, and I've said this often, that when you get momentum behind an album at release and momentum of review and opinion, and once that momentum is in place, it's very difficult to, to, uh, to stop it, whether yeah. that be negative, positive and for you know let's take two examples and anger when it came out immediately got that negative momentum no matter what anyone said about sin anger no matter what anyone says about it now the consensus and i and i use that term in adverted commas is that it's a bad album similarly uh death of death magnetic and uh hardwired both got off on positive review footings right uh, both of which are now considered to be good Metallica albums. Right now, we'll get on to what what we respectively think about that shortly. But you're right; it's a collective. It's like a snowball gathering sort of yeah. snow. Once it gets rolling, it's very difficult to push back on that and say, "Actually, no, this isn't a good album," or "No, this is a good album." Because once right. that point, that that's that opinion out there. It's really tough to break. Right, and I and I think. Um you know, you mentioned St. Anger. I think that was probably one of the earliest albums to suffer from that Um, for better or for worse. um, You know, uh, I, that was sort of, you know, that was 2003. Uh, People were just starting to have that voice that we mentioned before. And now you have um, all this negative energy and it, and it's, it, it it's a lot different than when you just bought the album, brought it home, lived with it in your own head, 
And then maybe, you, you know, you go to school, have your group of friends, you talk about it. Maybe they trash it. Maybe they like it. Maybe this, maybe that. But it, it's just a lot. It was just a lot more insular. And I think uh-huh. people could easily form their own opinion and thoughts where I feel like nowadays, um, you know, somebody might have read something about St. Anger, but like that album's garbage. Did you listen to it? No, but <laughs> I, I don't know what you think, but I mean, how often and nowadays do you not buy something or form an opinion on something based on this big picture sort of opinion? That's I know I've done it. I'm guilty. I don't need to name any yeah. of them, but there's a couple of albums that have come out over the last few years of bands that I probably like that I thought, well, you know, I'll probably pass on this one because of what's being said about it. Then in some cases, I might go and listen to them and actually I'll think, well, I wish I'd actually bought it at the time because right. it's a good album. Uh, and I think I think we're all guilty of it. Sure. Subconsciously, yeah. listen to opinions and, uh, you know, we form our own and all of a sudden myth or, or sort of fiction festers into fact. You know, all of a sudden something is a bad album because people say it is rather than it being legitimately not very good. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I, if you say you're not you've not been a victim of that you're lying i think because it's impossible if you're if you have a computer in internet which let's say 99 percent of people in our respective countries do then you're you cannot avoid it you know what especially if you're on social media in some form which most people are and or you listen to you know a podcast or Whatever it may be, there's just, again, so much content and you're bombarded by everybody's opinion. It's impossible to avoid entirely. And I, I and I like to think that more times than not, I will at least like in, in terms of an album, I'll at least listen to a song from it and try to form my own opinion. But if I was saying it's I'm not influenced by what's out there, that'd be a lie. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. It's almost impossible to escape. I, I try not to do it, but you know, just like everything, I try not to buy everything from Amazon. But it's so easy. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and on the flip side too, I think it has the opposite effect. You know, like uh, in, I think when Metallica released the song "Hardwired," it was there was so much excitement from the fan base, and it, it gets uh, really hyped up. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and uh, I was carried along with that as well for a yeah. while. So I, there is definitely something I wanted to get to, which I'm going to still get to, but we've been going, we're we're naturally going down this road, so let's go down it. Uh, I know that you have uh, a a lot of opinions about later Metallica. Um, so when for you did they sort of start? missing the mark a bit i don't think they've ever missed the mark I, I should say that while i wasn't massively complimentary about either either load or reload in the book i identified enough good songs on both of those yeah. albums well okay let, let me summarize and say i think that like a lot of people i think that would have benefited from being one album yeah i think you could comfortably merge those into to to one album and had one really good album and I should say, I, I probably listen to some of the songs off Load and Reload more than anything nowadays. I love that. I love the production. I love the sound. I like the the vibe they had going with that. I never had any issue at all with the eyeliner or the image at all. I thought it was great. I thought it all worked. Right. I, thought it was, I thought there was tons of filler on Reload. 
Uh, I thought there was some filler and load, but I also think in Bleeding Me, Outlaw Tour, and a few others, you've got some of the best ever Metallica tracks. And I don't care whether Absolutely. you're a fan from the beginning or what you are. I think there are some absolute gems on, on there. Uh, Sin Anger, when it came out, I wasn't a hater. Uh, I, I wasn't, obviously, not a fan of the production. Uh, it wasn't pleasing, the production, but I respected the, the production. And the reason I respected it was because they made a decision to do it. I know for a fact they right. were listening to bands like System of a Down and all that around that time. I know they were. Uh, and I know they were influenced by other things. But I respected their their uh, desire to go and make an album that sounded like that. And from that perspective, I could overlook that wasn't particularly pleasing. Again, there's some good songs on that album, but I think the good songs are kind of hidden behind that production. And, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, if, it, if someone remixed it or remastered it and made it sound a bit more, uh, a bit more uh, contemporary, it would sound a lot better. Maybe it would. I don't know. But I didn't have a problem with that. What I did have a problem with was Death Magnetic uh, in almost every capacity. And one, the production I despise probably more than St. Anger. I can't stand it. And on a secondary level, I think it's the only time Metallica have ever really compromised and made an album that is reactionary to fan opinions. I mm. think Snyder, they made the album they wanted to make, didn't really care what the fans thought, this is what we're doing, here it is, take it or leave it. Got a whole load of pushback, uh, rightly or wrongly, then went, went back and thought, okay, how can we fix this? What can we make at this point in our career that will uh, pull back some of the fans that we might have lost? And that album was Death Magnetic. And... From that perspective, I think it's the weakest album in their entire career uh -huh. uh, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it's two or three good songs, but in general, I have got no love for it at all. And I think it was the peak of those sort of, I, don't, I never really understood how it all worked, the dynamic range, loudness issues with yeah. the, the production. Really don't like the production whatsoever. And uh, it's the album I listen, to, I listen to least. Interesting. So I... I, I have to say I'm I think all everything you said is a valid point and I agree with a good chunk of it I load reload I will always enjoy those albums have a soft spot in my heart for me that those albums came out when I was in middle school there was uh when I heard yeah. when I heard until it sleeps on the radio when I was in fifth grade um at that point I was naive and thought Oh, Metallica is coming out with their second album because <laughs> I knew of the Black yeah. album, and then by the time you I, <laughs> you didn't know the history by that point. Exactly, and so I had a you know after I got the Black album, after I got Load, I went back and educated myself, read books, read, and, and I became you know obsessed, and and here I am now, all these yeah. years later, hosting a podcast about them. But you know, I I did not have the education at that point, so I will always have that era. I always have a soft spot for that era. And I and I think there are a lot of great songs. And I agree with you. I think a song, in my personal opinion, a song like Bleeding Me, a song like The Outlaw Torn, um, a song like Fuel, you could put yeah. it up there with anything that came before it. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I do not necessarily have a problem with the rest of the songs, but if you're looking uh, for me to make an argument that Poor Twisted Me or slither are as strong of songs as what came before it i just cannot make that argument um, no, you're right that's true and 
as in insane anger i i like the album i think there are a lot of hidden gems on that record i get all the criticism against the production but at the same point for me it's similar to injustice for all in a way like it's a decision that they made for better or for worse and i and what i love about one of the things i love about this band is that they do not apologize and at the very least, they made something memorable because they're still getting asked about the freaking snare drum all these years later. That's what I mean. I really respect that. Just like I respected Justice at the time. Yeah. And it was really hard to take Justice at the time. Trust me, after Master of Puppets, yeah. we got Justice. We, we, we were like standing there saying, what has happened? Yeah. It just did not make sense. But in time, you grow to respect it. Justice is, you know, my, my goodness, such a great album. Uh, but Again, you could respect it, and I respect right. it for the same reason. But I'd be interested to, to know what you think of Death Magnetic. Uh, but it just felt to me like it was it was a reactionary. So I I see that uh, point, and my opinion is when it first came out, I was really excited. Um, it for me, I was like. This is this is the album that's going to shut up all the haters. This is the album that you know everybody's been wanting them to make since not even since the Black Album, since Injustice for All. It, yeah. and, it, and I think in a lot of ways, musically, it has probably the most ties to Injustice for All. Yeah, I, uh, I I I will say this. I think you know the 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 if I if I take any uh, mastering issues out of it. Um, and I just look at the songs. Uh, it is an album I like, but I find myself now in 2020 not revisiting it uh, all that much. Um, and I think part of the reason is I was uh, Hardwired to Self Destruct came out, and for me that was a just such a great record. I love how it's produced. I love how the band sounds on it. I think the majority of the songs are. Uh, really, really great. Some of them are up there with their best. And mm-hmm. I think after hearing that album, Death Magnetic suffers. No, totally agree. I mean, it's, I mean, the production, no comparison. Uh, the, the quality of the songs, no comparison. Uh, Death Magnetic, I remember when I first heard it, I was in New York and I was in Tower Records, which I think still, obviously it still existed then. And, I, and they were playing it over the, the, the store hi-fi, yeah. and I wasn't sure whether it was out or not. Uh, I wasn't sure whether it was out that day or the day after. Anyway, they played the first track. And I remember hearing this and thinking, I really hope this isn't the new Metallica album, because if it is, I really don't like the sound of this at all. <laughs> and I, still think it's one of, I think it's the worst opening track on any Metallica album. I mean, just really, really bad. And I bought the album anyway. And of course, for the first few plays, you know, The Day That Never Comes, a good song. And The Judas Kiss is a good song. There's a, you know, there's a few good songs. There was enough to get you sort of thinking, okay, yeah, this is all right. But I think as time passed, I didn't revisit it. And I started to dislike what I felt it was. And I could be totally wrong about it. It's just my opinion. I just felt yeah. it was a real attempt to get fans back on side and to sort of redress some of the damage. And that's a really unmetallica thing to do for me. That's that's what kind of put me off. I can see that, and I mean, the, no matter your opinion, there's no denying that it was them trying to get in touch with what they had done before. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, you know, Rick Rubin has a tendency to do that with his artists for better or for worse and kind of get to the core of them. And, but I, 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 I do think that it could have been approached in a way where they could have still tried some new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at like what Rick Rubin did with the Johnny Cash records, he got to the core of who he is as an artist, but changed him. Yeah. And, and, and now he was mostly acoustic based and it, it was really a focus on his voice and the songs themselves. Yeah. Um, and it, if Metallica had a little bit more reinvention on it, I'll, maybe it has, it would age better. Um, I, I do like the record. I think uh, there are a lot of songs on it that I enjoy. And I think in the live setting, they work well for the most part, but I, I definitely agree that the album has suffered over time. Yeah, no, it has. And something I said to you in one of our conversations throughout all of this, regardless of what they've released album-wise, their live shows, at, at every era, and I think I've seen them in most eras, including St. Anger and Load, yeah, always been right on it live. No matter you know, no matter what anyone said about the album or, or whatever's been going on, I think of all bands, Metallica have always delivered live, and that's still the case. I saw them on this recent tour, and they were as great as ever, and saw them twice on Death Magnetic. As much as I didn't like Death Magnetic, the live shows were great. So... There's never a problem there, but uh, yeah, just Death Magnetic's the one in the in the catalog that just doesn't work for me so well. And to tie in with what you just said, you know, I, I think that shows how powerful the live show is when you look at like they never really missed a beat. You could, you know, it, no. they released Saint Anger. It had all this hate, all this negative attention. So if you consider that their career low. It still sold a few million albums in the states alone. It they yep. went, they sold out stadiums in in arenas in support of the uh, of the album. Like that's your career low. This band yeah. is like another level, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter what they do; they'll sell out stadiums. Yeah, and they as well now, and that's amazing. And I'm very very happy for them that they do that. Uh, and they could literally release anything and they would sell out stadiums. Uh, I'm just glad they're still making music now. I mean, if you'd asked yeah. me back in 1986 whether I expect them to still be making music in 2020, I probably would have said no. So, you know, anything we get at this point is great. And, it, and it, as it turns out, Hardwired is a good album. It's a solid album. It's got a lot of good songs. There isn't any songs I aggressively dislike on it. Not yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're really being picky, something like Murder One isn't a great Metallica song, but sure. I mean, you know, apart from that, across the board in terms of uh, of pacing and uh, styles, I think it's great. And who knew we'd, we'd see this in uh, at this stage of their career? That would seem impossible. And I, and it's, you know, the fact that they're releasing an album of that quality at this stage in their career, and it's still relevant. Yeah. I think it's the amazing thing. It you know this this is a band that could easily sell stadiums and arenas and just play the Black Album every night. Or, uh, uh, but you know they if you saw them on Worldwide, they're opening up with Hardwired, Atlas Rise, and then yeah. going to some older stuff. But they're playing 
at least four new songs a night and each one is getting a massive reaction from the crowd yeah i think they were smart as well with hardwired i think hardwired as much as it appealed to the hardcore fans and it did a lot of the guys who were sort of complaining about they didn't sort of play music that was even vaguely similar to their early days were appeased i also think they brought in some new fans as well i think there was enough on 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 the new record to 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 pull in people who maybe hadn't been with them the whole journey there was enough there very smart commercial move uh think it works and that's what they're masters of they know exactly what it is they need to do in order to keep the fan base kind of uh recycling itself because the guys sure. that are there they're, they're they're my age now you you also need to have in this new internet world you need 18 year old fans and 25 right. year old fans what are you going to give them you're going to give them an album like hardwired because mm-hmm. uh tells you everything that metallica is all about right there in one album yeah i, I i've always said uh, I think why the album works so well because it 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 it's a mixture of everything that they've done in their career that yeah. they do well. You know, you yeah. have you have the thrash elements from the early days. You have the groove from Load and Reload. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a even his vocals. I feel like are a good mix of the the rough aggressiveness of the '80s with the more uh melodic croon of the 90s it's it's they just found the perfect balance on this one every it's the every man's metallic album it really is it covers all the bases uh and uh yeah no i'm I'm very happy that it exists so one thing that uh we had a brief conversation with on twitter in one album that has not been mentioned yet lulu yeah no i like it uh, I didn't like it at the time. I hated it at the time. <laughs> I it at the time was because everyone said it was no good, and I listened to them, and uh, and then I listened to it, and I thought, okay. I mean, I think the the caveat to all of this is, and it's one I've heard before. You have to suspend everything you know about a Metallica and B Lou Reed, right? And, view this album just as something you you don't, you don't come at it from the point of view of being a metallica fan you probably don't come at it from the point of view of being a lou reed fan just come at it and listen to it as what as what it is and i think when you do that i think there's a lot to like about it uh i mean apart from anything else it's got a couple of the better metallica riffs of recent years uh hidden away there in the background uh something like dragon or something near the end of that i think it's great i mean yeah I think the rhythm section sounds fantastic on uh, on Lulu. Do all the songs work? And is it a bit of a rambling mess at times? Yes, but I mean, in the great Metallica tradition, I think they've they've kind of bought the earned the right to do exactly what they want. And if that includes playing with Lou Reed on an album of rambling, sort of spoken vocals with them jamming in the background, listen, go for it. Right. But yeah. I think works, and I, and I do like. I just love the way they sound in it. And I love the way that they're willing to stand in the background and let him be front and center and say, Hey, listen, you sing, we'll just be here and we'll sound pretty good while we are. And I think from that perspective, it works. Don't ask me about the, 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 the sort of the narrative and all of that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. And it doesn't really matter to be quite honest. I think it's yeah. madness. The whole thing is just deranged. But if you're asking me, 
do I like this piece of music and put it on? And I absolutely love it. I think it's great. Hmm. I think what, what I like about the album is the fact that they did it. Yeah. And this is, uh, again, another reason why I love this band is that they will do what they want. And I cannot think of, for better or for worse, there's no other metal band that would have the balls to do that record. 100%. Um, you're not, they're not going to take that chance to alienate the fan base or to be viewed as, uh, you know, not cool enough or not metal enough or whatever. They're not going to take that chance or maybe in some cases not able to take that chance because of limitations, uh, whatever the case may be. But I admire the fact that they did it. I think that there are some there are some songs on it I dig. I think there are some songs that lose me along the way. Yeah. It is definitely jarring to listen to, but I also think that's part of the point. Yeah, of course. And you know, what what I always say to Metallica fans too is that it's first and foremost a Lou Reed record that it's his vision. Yeah. And Yes, Metallica contributed heavily to it, especially in terms of the arrangements and whatnot. And James's vocals pop up here or there, but it's it, it's his vision that Metallica yep. just helped see through. And mm-hmm. you're not going to get too many artists that separate from each other. It's, you know, it's somebody very uh, Lou Reed has done whatever the f he wants for his entire career. <laughs> you have to admire that absolutely i i i mean i always love artists even if i do not like the album i always have loved artists who are willing to do whatever they want to do like uh neil young is an artist i really admire and he had that string of albums in the 80s and 90s that were so outside of his style and i'm not saying those albums are good these are the ones that you to piss off the label I think the late, I think yeah. uh, having some fallout with the label. So he said, okay, I'll give you stuff that you don't want. And there's nothing. You can do. <laughs> yeah. But I, I loved that part of it, you know, and yeah. there, and there was, and, and it wasn't just like, it wasn't just an F you. There was a genuineness to it. And, uh, yeah. and, and I admired that. I'm not saying when I listen to Neil Young, I'm putting any of those records on, but I like that they exist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the same can be said for a lot of other artists I like. And he, even, you know, I'll I'll give uh, Megadeth some credit but because you uh, kind of jumped in on our little Twitter thread today when we were talking about, uh, I, I, I tweeted about how I think Risk is a better album than most all the recent Megadeth records. And I think the, you know, the it's not, the best Megadeth record. Some people might not even say it sounds like Megadeth, but I admire the fact that they took the chance on that record and did something different. And and the fact of the matter is, too, just to put my personal opinion out there, I think the songs are stronger than the than the last few records, including Dystopia, which a lot of people saw as like sort of uh, a return to form, but I just saw it as more sort of like not <laughs> i'll leave it at that <laughs> there's, there's another example of an album off one of these sort of negative momentum uh situations risk was another one yeah. i mean from the get-go people were like risk is no good okay this is a bad megadeth album 
and it has always been considered the kind of black sheep uh, up until Super Collider, which I've never actually listened to. I must I must admit here right now, I've never listened to that album. But uh, everyone always just said Risk bad, and Risk really isn't bad. I think Risk, as you say, is a very decent album. I think the songs, you know, okay, some of them are a bit melodic and a bit poppier. But I think as as compositions and tunes to listen to, I still enjoy that album very much, much more so than some of the more generic, uh, one-dimensional albums that have come after it. So yeah, you, you're right on the money. Yeah, I, I well, it's it's funny because it was in the front of my mind because me and a couple other guys on Twitter, um, we this we were talking about Megadeth randomly, and mm-hmm. our you know our hot takes about which album we like better than the others and. Da, 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 da. long story short we decided that we were going to all revisit all albums after system has failed okay and try to pick what we think the top five songs are from all the albums so i just re-listened to all those records and okay. i have to say like some of them like I, I think it took me five years to listen to super collider and i only listened to it once so, like, for me, this was, like, listening to these albums for the first time for the most part. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of genericness to it. Like, that's why I was kind of turned off from the records um, in the first place. And I love Megadeth. I, I, uh, uh, but they just, for the last decade, I feel like they've there's almost been too much Megadeth. And they if they did the eight years between album approach Metallica takes, maybe we would have some stronger material, but um, yeah, but, but, but after listening to those records, I went back, I'm like, I haven't listened to risk in years. Let me go listen to risk and see how it holds up. And I was like, I really like this record. (laughs) I can't say that about, uh, definitely not dystopia. I I thought Endgame was a good album. Uh, I thought that had some good songs. Yeah. That has some solid tracks to it. It was good, but Megadeth don't, I mean, just in general terms, they don't come even close to Metallica for me. The the, the very yeah. best of Megadeth, and you know, I, I think Euthanasia is my favorite Megadeth album, which would does shock people, because people say, you know, surely Rust in Peace. But yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I was never a big Rust in Peace fan. Still am. I uh, understand why people like it, but if you're asking me to sit down and listen to a, a Megadeth album, start to finish it would be euthanasia it's the most album i i like listening to and listen to most but even them at their best just nowhere near there's no disrespect to anyone in megadeth at all because they've had the kind of career that most bands would love to have sure we cannot compare that with metallica i mean it's just it's just not comparable uh and but the guys in megadeth should feel no shame whatsoever about the career they've had I mean, just a phenomenal career across across lots of years as well, and it's great. They're still making music. Absolutely agree. And the, but the thing is, Megadeth has had a phenomenal career, but Metallica is just this rare phenomenon, right? There's, there'll never be yeah. another one. They have somehow crossed over beyond heavy metal into popular culture, and you know, now in 2020, I, you know, I, the the name Metallica is. Can be... It's like Coca-Cola. I mean, right, it is, exactly. Man, it's massive. I mean, and as you say, it will ne- it definitely will never happen again. Well, actually, I, I don't like to say never, but highly unlikely in, sure, in yeah. any climate that we could imagine uh, in terms of music, 
in terms of how music is sold, I would be very surprised if another band like Metallica ever existed. I think they were the sort of, I, I still don't really know how they did it, but they, they did it. And, uh, it is a, they're an absolute phenomenon uh, in that context. And, you know, even a band like Iron Maiden, who uh, I'm a fan of, totally understand. They put on massive tours and they've been around for a very long time, ACDC as well. They're, they're not even close in terms of the sort of brand recognition that Metallica is, I don't think. I, don't, I just don't think they're there. I agree. They're also, you know, not, uh, you know, th they're still putting on big live shows and great live shows, but yeah. they're not putting out new albums with the same relevancy, no. which I is agree. really the astonishing thing. I The most astonishing part of Metallica's career right now is yeah, that no. people still care about what they're doing. Yeah, but I think it's because they're recycling the fan base as well. I think that's sure. such a smart tactic. I mean, the guys like me, guys like you who've been in for a long time as well, we still like it. But, you know, I'm sure you've got 16-year-old kids walking around thinking, great, Metallica, this is fantastic. I can't believe a band like this exists. Right. They've got a catalog to go back into and listen to. So, uh, no, I think, yeah, as you say, they're, they're, they're unparalleled. So one thing I definitely want to talk to you about is uh which was sort of the initial interaction we had on twitter and you go into some of this and so let it be written but sort of the unsung heroes who helped make metallica phenomenon and you know diehards are going to know at least some of the names but uh, you were able to speak to a lot of these individuals uh when putting together the book and i think it really provided a great insight into who james was at was during that time period and how he approached music and so can you talk to me a little bit about some of these unsung heroes and just sort of how that whole process came together for you getting them for the book not very easily i have to say <laughs> I've done a lot of uh, dead ends of course just for context the first thing that i did naively when i started doing this book was try to contact metallica which was met with polite resistance let's just put it that way <laughs> I think it would be uh and back in those days i was on facebook and i'm not at the moment uh and the, as you know you can you can go on to facebook and, you, and right at the beginning you could there weren't people with profiles that were private and all that kind of right, thing. You could yeah a little bit find people uh and and the guy that i found that was the best one uh in terms of the investigative work was hugh tanner now, Hugh, Hugh, people didn't know about Hugh Tanner. Some some deep insiders knew who Hugh was. Right. And the band had certainly never talked about him. He'd never been mentioned in interviews. He'd never given an interview. Now, I think I private messaged 16 separate Hugh Tanners on Facebook back in those <laughs> until And these were all Hugh Tanners with no avatar photograph. Yeah ninth profile Hugh Tanners so I just took sort of 16 stabs in the dark and hoped that somebody would reply <laughs> real Hugh Tanner did and said very guardedly at first you know why do you want to talk to me and all that and I explained what I was doing and I said you know I'm not looking to throw James under the bus or you know make it this salacious type of tell all look at all what I'm trying to get is a sense of this kid you know what who, who was the kid that became who we know now and the only way to do that is to speak to people who were hanging around him and right. you were 
and he you know that we had a sort of back and forth for about a week uh whereby he decided whether he wanted to talk to me or whether he didn't and i completely understood why he didn't because sure. you know he'd never done it and you know it's a long time ago did i want to did he want to put the stuff out there yeah uh, Harvin didn't but eventually we agreed to talk and, and he, he recognized that my my uh desire was coming from the right place and i think right. he respected that and you know i yeah, I'm sure Hugh wouldn't mind me saying that there was probably a bit of ego there for him as well. You know, someone's going to talk to me about my part and he'd love to tell my stories. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that association is one that everybody would want. So uh, we got into talking about it. And uh, Hugh was a really important part of James's life, not just because of the musical part of it, but Hugh was around when James was going through a, a lot of upheaval in his own family when uh, his mother died. Uh, his father left etc and the impression i got from hugh was that I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that hugh's family became a surrogate family but i certainly think that that hugh took james in more than other people did and you know when james maybe didn't have somewhere to go after school or whatever hugh would invite him back to his place and all of that and i know that hugh was into music of that kind perhaps some of the same bands that james was into he was into guitar and I think it was one of these situations whereby, you know, we're both home after school, sitting in the bedroom, you know what it's like listening to music or whatever. One of them got a guitar, then the other one gets a guitar, and all of a sudden they start saying, who can, who can play a bit here? And that was what I got from Hugh, was that it was really, really organic. Neither of them knew anything. I think Hugh had a guitar that somebody had spray-painted or something. It was really basic stuff. But they started doing that. Obviously, other people came in, came into the, the friendship group, Ron McGovney, who uh, who I know quite well, because Ron, I think Ron chipped in on that Twitter conversation, actually, didn't he? Well, uh, I think that's where our interaction started, because he uh, had posted something, I forget what, and I responded, and then I think I extended an invite to him for the podcast, and then, uh, which I was not expecting it to be received, because he seems just sort of like a, a private guy likes to do his thing but then uh that's when our interaction began yeah i think ron i think ron is confl actually it's not fair for me to say but i think part of him likes to, to get stuck into some of these conversations and also i think part of him likes to distance himself from it as well yeah uh, but the good thing about ron ron is great ron remembers a lot and yeah. he was my, after hugh i got in touch with ron and Ron, again, another huge, huge part of the Metallica story. And the reason Ron was so important, and we're going a little bit later than Hugh, because, you know, Ron was, as much as he was at high school with James and they knew each other and they all sort of hung around in the same group, Ron, obviously being the first official bass player in the band, uh, he was so important because he had a premises where they could rehearse. Yeah. Ron's house was where they rehearsed. Without that, they wouldn't have anywhere to play. Uh, and in the early days the, uh, of, you know, playing around L.A., Ron was important because he had a car. Then even more so when they got the first invitations to play up in, in San Francisco, Ron had a truck and a trailer. Ron was really, really important to those early days of the band in terms of giving them a means to get around. I'm not saying that Ron wasn't a good bass player. He was. was yeah. good bass But he was that little bit more mature a little bit more able in terms of what he could do uh and he was so vital and i don't 
I don't think Ron gets the, the credit that he deserves for that because he facilitated a lot of things that they did in the early days. And yeah. uh, he's a really great guy. And he remembers a lot. And he remembers a lot about these these early bands. And the, the, the pre-Metallica bands, and by that we're talking about Obsession, Leather Charm. The, these, what I, what I came to realize was that speaking to different people, the boundaries of these are really blurred. I mean, I don't think there was a sort of defined leather charm era where, right, this is leather charm, we exist, and we play. Right, yeah. Play. So there's no obsession, this is what we do. I think these things just kind of all merged into each other. Yeah. And I think the common theme through all of it was that James was always looking for the best players, no matter who they were, and it didn't really matter what they were playing, because let's be honest, these two bands were mostly playing covers in the early stages. They were playing cover versions, tiny bits of experimentation with with uh, sort of compositions of their own. And, you know, Hugh was involved in that. Uh, I have to say that Hugh did tell me, and I couldn't put it in the book because, uh, well, the publisher wouldn't let me. They, you know, Hugh did say to me, I was involved in, some, in, the, in the, the, the composition of some pretty important Metallica tracks. Yeah, uh, he can destroy is one of them. I can't remember what the others are, but you know some of that stuff off uh, Kill 'Em All. Hugh, Hugh was really quite quite sort of instrumental in making them happen. And when it came to the conversation with the publisher, when they saw this, they said, uh, "So you're saying Hugh Tano was was part of He Can Destroy?" And I said, "Yep." And they said, "We don't see his name on the album cover, so we we can't put that there. We just can't do it." Now. Hmm. Uh, I don't have an opinion on that. I understand where they're coming from, right. but I do think that there's every chance that Hugh had more involvement than he has given credit for uh, on on some of these early tr early songs. And yeah. uh, then you've got a guy like Dave Mars. Dave Mars, don't know if, you, if you've come across Dave. He pops up on Twitter now and again. He was another high school friend hung around with James and these guys in these bands, ultimately ended up being a roadie for Metallica for a while, up until Ride the Lightning, I think he was uh, one of oh, their... Wow, yeah. He knows all these people, and he remembers some of the, 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 the characters that came in and out, but the common theme through all of it was that James was navigating this path through all these other people. He was finding the best players. Who is the, who is the guy that can get me to the next stage? And I think I don't think it was until he met Lars. Uh, not that Lars was a great musician at the beginning, but okay. I think and Lars and you know we're we're, we're rabbit holing a little bit here in terms of Metallica. But James was the musician. James had the the, the musical know how. Lars had all the ability to get their name out there. And I think yes. James recognized that. He was like, "This is the guy I need." You know, he's over there in the UK at one point, hanging around with Diamond Head. If right. he can do. What can he do for us? Right. Well, and, and that is still the dynamic. I feel like, and I'm not underestimating Lars's musical ability or James's uh, business ability, yeah. but it, that's the that's the relationship that fans know of. You know, like yeah. James is, dr drives the vehicle, art kind of artistically, and yeah. Lars drives the vehicle with everything else. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think they both know what which uh, each other's strengths are. Yeah, uh, I think there's obviously been conflict about that over the years because the, sure. again, just that these boundaries get blurred. 
And, you know, you, you start resisting somebody taking too much control. But I think if they both looked at it in the cold light of day, they would both understand what each of them brings to the to the table and recognize that without either of them, it wouldn't happen. It's vital. So, you know, I think Lars was the first musician he found in those early days who, okay, you can make him a good drummer, but you can't make somebody a master promoter. And, no. I mean, yeah. I would just walk up to anyone and say, you know, we're this we kick ass or whatever, can you get us this? And for some reason, doors would open for Lars. And, and in those days, that's what you needed because without it, you were going nowhere. Right. And I learned that stuff, you know, when I, talking about a later book, when I worked with Brian Slagle, because obviously Brian Slagle, you know, he put Metallica on, on the first Metal Massacre uh, compilation. At that time, Metallica didn't exist because what happened was that Brian contacted Lars, they were already friends and said, hey, I'm putting this compilation out. Uh, do you want to be on it? And Lars said, yeah, we'll be on it. But at that point, they didn't have a band. They didn't have a complete right. band. Yeah. We'll be on it. Just, yeah. just know that we will. We just don't know how we're going to make that happen at this point. And that's just how they've been. Uh, but Lars made it happen. But there was another guy involved, and he was somebody else I spoke to, a guy called John Carnarons, who some in, in, insiders will know about. John... Uh, he was a friend of Brian Slagle's. And at that time, I think James wanted John Canarons to be in Metallica because he was a decent guitar player. I think he funded the, the mastering of the song for Metal Massacre with his own money. Because mm -hmm. I think they got, I think the story goes, and it's been told a few times, they got to the studio or whatever, and the guy said, oh, we need 50 bucks. No one had 50 bucks, <laughs> no one had 50 bucks to do it. <laughs> and Aaron's, who had a job in a grocery store or something said i've got 50 bucks so he put his money up there and yeah. all got done but you know i think they, they wanted john to be in the band and he's told me since you know i could have been in metallica but at that time his parents wanted to go wanted him to go to college they were looking at him saying you know what are you doing here type of thing what sort of right. life would it be and, well you know, i mean it's <laughs> well it's it's easy in 2020 to look back and be like oh that could have been me, but it, the reality is, you know, as, as a musician myself and being around musicians, you see all these bands starting up and it's like your band could be something. Most likely it's going to be nothing. Yep. And so, you know, it, how, how passionate and dedicated are you to that lifestyle? Because even if you're a musician and you're a damn good one, the lifestyle of touring and grinding it's just not for everybody. And I, I've never personally done it. So I'm not the best person to speak to it, but you know, knowing people who have done it, I know that's not the lifestyle for me. No, I a hundred percent agree. And faced with that choice in 1982, you know, you got the chance to go to college or whatever, and you got this band who might be something, or they might have just put one song in the compilation. That might have been it. Right. You know, well, um, and, and education for that right and think about telling your parents like well i'm not going to go to college i'm going to join my friend's band yeah like any any parent even i would to my daughter one day when she goes off to college would be like what no <laughs> your friend's wow. band who cares about your friend's band and then one in, and then one in a million times that friend's band ends up being metallica you know <laughs> i know so there was lots of these guys there was yeah. Lloyd Graham who uh was in the band very briefly before Dave Mustaine there's Dave Mustaine himself 
I, I tried to get to all these people, but it was the guys like Hugh Tanner that were really important because they were the, yeah. the 14, 15 year old kids that were singing in the bedrooms, looking yeah. across games and trying to get a handle on what he was going to be. And almost all of them, and a lot of people repeated, said to me, oh, everyone said the same thing. And the reason they said the same thing is because that's what James was. James was this reserved, little bit angry kid who was going somewhere. Simple as that. You know, no one gave yeah. a different opinion because there wasn't a different opinion to give. Yeah. It, that's one thing that stood out to me when I was reading it was that you have all these different people involved and they all sort of had similar stories. Yeah. And it's like, well, that tells me that James was who he was and is who he is. And it, and at the same time, too, it added to the to the myth we spoke about earlier because like even the people close to him who were there were sort of like felt like a little bit on the outside it seemed definitely definitely that's the case the one thing that's really annoyed me since not annoyed me that's puzzled me is that the james did an interview with guitar center uh i don't know how recently it was reasonably recently where he sits and plays i think it's ultimately a a promo video for guitars and pickups right. and stuff like that. But along the way, he throws in this story about some friend of his at high school called John Zander. Hmm. And I remember thinking, listening to this thinking, who the hell is John Zander? <laughs> why, why, you know, with all these people that I spoke to who were literally in James's bedroom, why did no one mention John Zander? And I, I still don't know why, and I've tried to research why, but... James himself said, yeah, I had this buddy called John Sander, and he and I would basically try and outdo each other all the time at high school. Mm, Never yeah. from anywhere, from, from anywhere, from anyone else ever at any time. That mm. always frustrated me because I've always thought, damn, I wish I'd got, I managed to get a hold of John Sander. <laughs> but I didn't know who he was. But I'm sure right. there's a few people. You know what it's like. If you're in high school, you, you know, you're surrounded by 50 other people. There could be a number of different people that came into his life with something yeah. different certain time that he remembers and other people don't well it in being a, a musician in high school like i know when i was uh doing my nerdy self and jazz bands you know you had the upperclassmen who you looked up to because they they were better than you and, yeah. it, and then that created like that the the friendly competition you're like well i want to be better than that person and then you kind of are grinding it out for the couple years that you share in high school and looking back on it it you know it doesn't really mean anything but it helps except for the fact that it helps form kind of you know who you are in terms of uh uh as a musician yeah and i think for james that was the case as well there was obviously something about that relationship with this guy that resonated with him uh but for me it was just one of those things i thought ah, better, <laughs> but never mind i'm very happy with the people i did get hold of for that book and uh yeah. you know come out in a few different languages and i still think you know while it's not going to be the definitive book until james writes his own one day uh, i think for casual fans of the band i think it delivers a reasonably rounded package of what he's all about yeah i mean for even for me though as a, a diehard who is you know, since I discovered Load was not their second album, has gone back and done the research and has just, you know, they has become uh, beyond fandom for me on a, a certain level is, uh, you know, it, it was really interesting reading that part of the book because you, you hear about some of these names from things that you read or interviews that the band has done. Um, yeah. But 
it's very rare that you get to uh, hear it in their own words. Yeah, no, I was very lucky to get get them to talk, and very grateful for them for for because I mean, in my opinion, they made the, certainly the early part of the book. They were vital, and you know, not everyone had to do it. Um, you know, they, they're all entitled to their privacy and stuff like that, and they were all very right. generous. Still in touch with most of these guys as well, and you know, still lovely guys doing different things in life. Right. Uh, all of them part of the story at some point along the way. As a fan, and having obviously all my listeners be diehard fans i hope that they know that if they want to tell their story there's a lot of people who would like to hear it in their own words um i just am wondering sometimes if uh if you know maybe they just are private and that's fine but i wonder sometimes if they feel like because metallica is such a beast that you know they don't want to basically create a headline uh but you know, there's people out there like yourself, and uh, I like to think myself not looking for any kind of headline. So I, I hope that they know that if they want their story to be heard, you know, there there are outlets where fans are dying to hear what they have to say, especially from Ron. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Uh, and, I, and I do take your point. I think there are a proportion of people who may have a connection with the band who probably don't want to be seen to be either grabbing a headline or even worse profiting in any way from 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 talking about it yeah uh, and but I, I do take your point I think the stories about what happened back in the day I, I, I always view them as being rather than grabbing headlines I, I always saw them as being a means of honoring what the band have done right yeah the more, the more people know about the story and how it all happened and you know all of that I think my, my view is that that can only make someone go out and buy an album. I mean, you know, if Metallica had any issue whatsoever about me writing a book about James Hetfield, if they had ever sent me an email and said, you know, why are you doing this type of thing, which they never did, yeah. I, my response would have been, well, you know, I'd like to think that as a result of it, someone someone who wasn't a fan might go out and buy an album or a T-shirt right. or something. Yeah. Don't see how anyone loses. And yeah. I think to anyone who might have a story about you know however small their involvement with any band i think people want to hear that stuff and i think you know with what we have nowadays with podcasts and all that kind of thing there is that medium of doing it where you're simply imparting the information with no agenda you're not trying to create a headline you're just telling people how it happened because i think we all love to hear the stories yeah uh, i love to hear stories about led zeppelin and the beatles to a certain extent and all of that and absolutely Metallica. so uh yeah, I, I you know, I would encourage anyone who's got any stories that they they're maybe reticent about telling, go ahead and do it. We all want to hear them. Yeah, and, and similar to you too. Like I, I would love to give these guys their their moment of glory. You know, especially somebody like Ron. I think it, it, he should be more than just a bookmark in Metallica history. He was a member of the band. He was there in the early days grinding it out um and and for definitely do not want him to be diminished as just like an asterisk you know oh so i see ron as a really a very significant part of uh of metallica's trajectory still to this day uh without him many things would not have happened and that that applies to a lot of these guys hugh tanner as well yeah you you did uh contribute to these songs and whether it names on the album or not, uh, he was there. 
So I think they all need honoured. And, uh, you know, in a book like that book, which came out a long time ago now when I think about it, I think that was my aim at the time was to just give these guys a give these guys a platform and hopefully make the story better along the way. Absolutely. I think you were successful in doing so, because like I said, you, you know, if you want to know something, you got to go to the people who were there to live. Yeah. It. And yeah. there's there's no better source of information than that, period. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you could uh, I know you interviewed Johnny Z and Michael Lago, and I've been lucky enough to have them both on the podcast as well. And, you know, if if I want to know why Johnny Z signs Metallica, I want to hear it from the man himself. <laughs> I mean, Michael made a sort of out-of-the-box decision. Are we going to sign this band to Elektra or are we not? Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, talk about decisions that completely changed their trajectory. That was, I mean, hard to think yeah. of a bit than that. Uh, and he made that decision. He saw something in them that translated to major label. And, you know, that was one big jump. I and mean, it was one thing getting onto MTV later. But getting on a major label at that at that point was huge. Right. Uh, similarly, Brian Slagle, uh, well, huge amount of time for Brian. He is one of the best people in the business. He's basically a fan who has made a successful record label out of Metal Blade. He is the yeah. biggest fan I can think of. But without Brian Slagle, Metallica wouldn't exist either. And you know, Brian's interviewed in the book, and uh, for the same reasons, I've always wanted to give give him his props because. Without that song on on Metal Master One, who knows? The story could have been different, right? And it, you know, to kind of tie what you tie in what you were saying about Lars before, and then tie in what you just said. You know, I always say to the Lars haters who are like, "Well, this and that," and like, there is no Metallica without Lars Ulrich. Hundred percent. And 100%. you know, you can be like, "Well, what if so and so played drums? What if what if Vinnie Paul had played drums for Metallica?" would have had a hell of a drummer but yeah. they would not have been metallica yeah period you know and and but you know to tie in with the rest of it all these other people you say the same thing you know yeah. without ron you're not having metallica today uh, to the perhaps on the same level or definitely without brian slagel or johnny z or michael lago all these it's all the spokes in the wheel so to speak that make this thing roll forward and get to the next level and keep on moving up the food chain. Yeah. And I agree. And I'd throw Fleming Rasmussen into that equation as well. Because Absolutely. Yeah. He, I mean, wow. You talk about understanding how to produce them and you know, that a part of the appeal with, I mean, talking briefly about ride the lightning, ride the lightning is my favorite Metallica album, but part of the appeal with that is that cold European sound that that album had that I, I haven't heard since, but from any band, that it was awash with reverb. It was just this most bizarre sounding thing. That was yeah. all coming. And he knew how to produce them at that time. Again, without sort of throwing hundreds of names into the mixture, as you say, all these people had a part to play and he, he'd be another right. one that must yeah. not mention. He's vital to it. And I, I 100% agree with you. And same thing with Bob Rock. I, they do not get to that next level with the Black Album without him as producer either 100 percent. yeah it's it's all it's, it's been a it's been a big group effort and there is a there is a surrounding uh sort of cast of people and i, I should say kirk as well uh i was lucky enough to speak to kirk recently for a small book that i did oh, about, nice. about guitars and i knew that it would appeal to him because it was about the guitar that he now owns peter green yeah. kirk was very generous with his time 
would have talked forever about guitars. Uh, and I think I don't think Kirk ever gets the the plaudits that he deserves within Metallica. But he, he's the guy that just he's just been there since not quite the beginning, but certainly since the most important years, and has just never faltered whatsoever in any. Yeah. Showed up, done it. I think we've covered all the the players, but you know, all in combination, just a phenomenal band. Absolutely, and I think you know some kind of monster does the best job so far of kind of showing Kirk's role in the band, yeah. <laughs> especially during that time period when they were really falling apart at the seams. Yeah, definitely. I a hundred percent agree. It sounded, it felt like he was holding it together. Right. He was definitely the glue, the middleman, the, the, the peacemaker, the peacekeeper, whatever you want to call him. Yeah, 100% agree. couple quick questions before we wrap up, uh, sure. because, you know, we've talked about how Metallica is this, relevant band that you know is turning out new music so uh at the time we're recording this snm2 is upcoming by the time the episode's out it might have just been released but have you had a chance to experience any of snm2 do you have any thoughts on it yeah i like it i i loved the first one thought snm was great uh yeah. thought, thought it really worked did not expect snm2 have to say that's one thing i did not expect so that was a pleasant surprise for yeah. All of us diehards. Yeah, definitely. And I've seen the clips that are out there. I think I've said publicly on Twitter, I think All Within My Hands is the best reimagination Metallica have done of any song. I like the song as it stands on some anger. I think it's a good one of the better songs on some anger. But I think yeah. the acoustic slash sort of reworking is one of the best things they've done. And if that is any guide to the rest of the 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 performance i think it'll be fantastic yeah i think i think you know there's going to be some songs from snm2 that go down to be sort of the definitive version of that song i think for all within my hands that'll be the case for a lot of metallica fans is that version with the orchestra is the definitive version and maybe the same thing for uh unforgiven three when you just have the orchestra and james solo yeah no i agree fantastic and the you know they can do that again. It's Metallica. They can do that, and they can make it work. When they did just when they did S and M in the first place, the, the first time around, there was a few people that were saying, How, you know, why are Metallica doing this with an orchestra? And right enough, they managed to pull it off because they can. And uh, I think they'll do it again. I think this this one sounds like it might be an even better album than the the first S and M. You know, I'm yeah. so and I'll be buying it just like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely, and. That it's funny that because SNM was sort of this idea that was not supposed to work. Yeah. They they made it more than work. They made it a huge success. I think both commercially and artistically. And like you said before, who thought twenty years later they'd be doing a second one? Yeah. And then when it's announced, you, I I have enough trust in Metallica at this point to know that they'll do it right. Yeah. But in the back of your head, you're kind of like. I hope they do something cool with it. I hope it's not just like a quick cash grab, you know, like I don't want just a, uh, uh, if they do S and M one all over again from like start to finish, it'll be fun, but it's not really going to be like a true, like typical Metallica effort. But yeah. then lo and behold, they have all these left turns, especially in the second half of the concert. And it, they really brought it to the next level. And I, and I've already heard people who have seen it live or, uh, I was able to experience in theaters and some people have already proclaimed they like it better than the original. Uh, I definitely have to live with it a little bit 
before I make that proclamation. But it, there's the for them to do it twenty years later, on an equal level at least is astonishing. Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I can't wait to hear it all. Last question: it, I'm curious as a, a diehard fan, and you know, we talk so much about all the different things Metallica has done throughout the years, and you know, if you, I always just think. It, I, I like kind of going to my phone and putting on shuffle sometimes just for Metallica. And, you know, when you hear like whiplash and then it's followed up by like hero of the day, and then it's called <laughs> it, like, it's just like, it's a completely different band in so many yep. ways, but still the essence of Metallica is always there, you know, but I'm curious as a fan, what would you like to hear from Metallica on the next album? We know that they have at least started preliminary work in quarantine because the band members have said as much, but what is are you longing for uh more of what we saw from hardwired or would you like to see something new or that's a good question you know i'm, I'm i have to say i don't know whether it's because i'm getting older i'm not really craving the fast thrashy stuff nowadays you yeah. know a lot of people really went down on Spit out the bone i thought it was okay well it's not by any means my favorite song on hardwired and neither is the title track uh i'm much more of a fan of the slower stuff so from that perspective, I would probably be cool with, you know, if they were to go back and do something like revisit the kind of load type of sound, something a bit looser, maybe with a bit more of that sort of Southern rock groove that they had back yeah. then, I'd be cool with that. I, I would yeah. be very cool with that. I wouldn't have a problem whatsoever. Uh, I, I would be reluctant to hear them try and keep trying to revisit thrash because I'm not sure it works so well nowadays for them or for me. <laughs> That's just the way I think about it. I mean, I well, they can do it. They can do it live. We know they can do it, but uh, yeah, I think something like load or reload would be cool for me. That'd be cool to see. And, and I, I, I kind of agree with you. If you're just doing a straight thrash metal album at this point, part of me thinks it would be fun, but I'm not sure how many more layers beyond fun it would go for me um yeah. it just because you know i i feel like when you try i don't want them trying too hard and again not to knock megadeth because they're a band i love but to go back to some of those later more recent records i i feel like a part of it's like you're you're really trying to be the thrash metal band that you were i know so 50 plus year old man i mean you just can't yeah i just don't think you create what you created when you're 21, when you're 55 and try and right. carry that off credibility uh, point of view. Tell you, something just occurred to me while you were talking there. Do you know uh, you're talking about some kind of monster? Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in there where they're playing this weird song to Lars's father. And he famously says, <laughs> yeah. and I think that song yeah. was called or something like that. And it was this weird sort of echo chamber yeah. I actually think that was really, really cool. And I've, I've often thought since, why the hell haven't they revisited that and, and put it out? So I guess what I'm saying is, if they wanted to go really experimental and do kind of ambient, almost ambient stuff in, in that kind of thing, I'd be cool with that as well. Yeah, I feel like I, I, I so far we've sort of gotten like alternating albums from them, right? Like we got Sane Anger, yeah. which was... Um, definitely a Metallica record, but definitely experimental in how it was approached and in the songwriting. And then you got Death Magnetic, mm -hmm. 
and then you got Lulu. Yeah. <laughs> and now we've got Hardwire. So I'm like, are they going to do something? Are they going to take a left turn for the next project or what? <laughs> but again, that's what I like about them is that I feel like I can pick up any Metallica record. It's going to sound like the band that I like, but at the same time, I have no clue what to expect. What part of me wonders whether what will happen will be informed by lockdown and this whole sort of world we're living in now because it's also going to right. limit what you can do. I know for a fact it's, it's made me more introspective in terms of you know thinking about life and whatnot. I don't know what effect it's had on them. You know, Maybe it might produce something more experimental, and if it did, I'd, I'd really welcome that. I would be very, very interested to hear something more experimental. Yeah, I... I'm I'm all for it. I think, you know, like again, I like when bands just try something if if it doesn't work, at least it exists. At least they tried. At least it exists. At least it's out there yeah, I... for for people to digest and form their own opinion. And for me like an album like Lulu, it I'm not listening to it every day, but I would say once a year I give it a listen and I dig on some of the songs and 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 I'm fascinated by the process that went into it. Uh, just like I'm fascinated with the process that went into yeah. Saint Anger, like I, I, I'm really interested in the uh, artistic process for artists that I like. And when you have an album that's left field, like that, that that interests me more than how you made, you know, Hardwired. I like Hardwired more than Saint yeah. Anger, and I like Hardwired more than Lulu. But the process of making those yeah. two records interests me more. I think it's a more interesting story. Hundred percent agree with you. And from that perspective, I'd take anything. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Release another album. I just hope it doesn't take ten years. Uh, and if it, I'll be very happy for to, to hear whatever they they put out. Because as I've said many times, the fact that we even have Metallica in twenty twenty is fantastic. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so much. You have been so gracious with your time. I. I really appreciate it. I think this was a, a great conversation. Where can everybody find you online? And please plug anything and everything that you care to. No, I mean, no, no, need, no, no need to plug, but I'm out there on Twitter. That's the only thing I use uh, at Mark Eglinton. Uh, recent books of mine were Heavy Duty with Kiki Downing, uh, guitar player and Judas Priest. That came out a year and a half ago. Still out there awesome. doing great. Great. Uh, Previous books with Rex of Pantera, Nurgle of Behemoth, uh, Brian Slagle of Metal Blade, various other things, nothing to do with metal, uh, but anything new that's coming, and there are a few things coming that people will like, just keep a lookout on my Twitter and you'll see me announcing them. Definitely. And when you have something new to announce, please send it my way and I'll be more than happy to, to share it with everybody who listens. 100%. Really appreciate that and really appreciate you having me on because this is the kind of thing that keeps the world spinning when it comes to bands like Metallica. Uh, you know, we can listen to the albums unless we get people out there talking about it and having conversations about some of the, 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 the bits that aren't talked about very often. Uh, the world's uh, a worse place. So the, the more we do this, the better. Absolutely agree. And I would love to have you on anytime you're willing and interested uh, I love talking Metallica with you. Thank you very much. And I will talk to you soon. I 
I want to thank Mark again for agreeing to come on Metallicast and for being so gracious with his time. I really, really enjoyed talking Metallica with him. And I'm hoping he will be back on the show at some point in the future. But at the very least, you can check out all of our interactions on Twitter at Mark Anglington and at MetallicastPod. And remember what I said at the start of the episode. On Twitter, you can find out all the information so you can hopefully qualify to be a potential winner of his book of metal and man the definitive biography of james heffield he is kind enough to be giving away four books which he will dedicate personally to the winners all that information will be posted on the at pod twitter at eight o'clock p.m eastern time on monday september 7th 2020 and the window will close the window to qualify to be a winner will close at 10 p.m on september 8th 2020 so hopefully you are listening to this episode as soon as it goes live and if you're listening to this later sorry this is why you should tune in right away because you might miss big important things like the first ever metallicast giveaway you can also follow metallicast on facebook and instagram i'm at metallicast pod on all three Please download, subscribe, and leave a positive five-star review in Apple Podcasts. All that goes a long way to help the show grow so I can get more great guests like Mark Englington. I also want to thank everybody who tuned into the SM2 live launch show that I did last week with MetalTalk.net. I was joined by Scott Pingle, the principal bassist of the San Francisco Symphony. I was supposed to also be joined by Doug Riot, the principal harpist, but due to technical difficulties, he was unable to join the stream. Hopefully... Doug will be joining Metallicast in the future so we can have that conversation that I know a lot of you diehards wanted to hear as he was part of both SMs. So hopefully I can make that announcement soon. But either way, Scott was a fantastic guest. Everybody who listened has given me positive feedback. You can check out the video, it is still up on the App Metallicast Pod Facebook page as well as the MetalTalk.net Facebook page and the Fans Not Experts YouTube page, of course, our home site, fansnotexperts.com. Scott goes into great detail about his preparation for SNM2, as well as the performance itself. If you are a fan of Metallica, if you have bought and enjoyed SNM2, this is a really cannot-miss interview. The audio is up as a podcast. It is the episode before this one that you're listening to right now. So you have many ways to check it out. I encourage you to do so. You will not regret it. So again, download, subscribe, and leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Find us on fansonexperts.com, Apple, Google, Spotify, everywhere you find your podcasts. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, metal up your ass. Yeah! Fans not experts.